Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, back on the Young Turks. Uh, joining me now is Tom Hartman. Uh, he is the number one uh, liberal talk radio host in the country. Uh, he's the author of the Hidden History series. He did the Hidden History of Guns in the Second Amendment recently. And now he's got the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. Sounds strong, I like it. Tom, welcome back to the Young Turks. Hey, Cenk, it's great to be here with you. Uh, always good to talk to you, brother. All right, so uh, it's such a big topic. Let's start with uh, something that's in the title, betrayal. So how do we get betrayed? Well, it, the, the beginning of the betrayal was the seizure of power that uh, most of the founders didn't anticipate or uh, or believed the Supreme Court could pull off in 1803 in the Marbury decision. Uh, prior to that, the Supreme Court was basically the, the court of last resort. It, you know, it, ultimately, if you had a dispute with somebody, somebody had, you know, some court had to have the final say. You, you know, you, your, your neighbor's dog eats your chicken and you sue him. And you, you win or lose in the local court, and one of you appeals, and it goes to the appeals court, and to the state courts, and the federal courts, and ultimately it has to stop somewhere. And the Supreme Court was to be the court of final appeals, in addition to the court that would adjudicate disputes between the United States and other countries and between the individual states. Um, in 1803, in the Marbury decision, John Marshall, the Chief Justice, uh, wrote the decision and essentially said, We get to decide. It, because we're interpreting the law, the, the supreme law of the land is the Constitution, and so we get to decide what the Constitution means. But not just that, we get to be able to strike down laws that we think are in violation of the Constitution. And then in several subsequent decisions, the court went on to say, we can not only strike down laws, we can even write laws. This happened in 1803 when Thomas Jefferson was president, and Jefferson responded by saying, this opinion, which gives the judges the right to decide what laws are constitutional and what not, not only for themselves and their own sphere of action, but for the legislature and executive also in their spheres, would make the judiciary a despotic branch. If this Marbury opinion be sound, then indeed is our Constitution a complete felo de se, which is Latin for a suicide pact. He said the Constitution on this hypothesis is a mere thing of wax in the hands of the judiciary. So that's where it began. Um, the two big decisions that involved judicial review were the Marbury case in 1803, and it blew up in, in Marshall's face so badly, he basically never went back. And then the second big decision, there were a few small ones in that era, but the second big decision was 1856, when Roger Taney, who was the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, thought that he would finally solve the slavery problem in his uh, Dred Scott decision, which led us right to the, right to the Civil War. 
um, following Reconstruction and the collapse of, of uh, civility, shall we say, uh, the collapse of the of the of the post Lincoln era, uh, we saw the Supreme Court begin to use, uh, particularly in the 1880s, use judicial review much more aggressively. I mean, you're you're an attorney; you know a lot of this history as well as I do, right. and probably much better than I do in some regards. Well, I doubt that, but uh, thank you. Uh, so, Tom, but let, let's talk about some of the interesting ramifications of that. So if the Supreme Court can't review what is constitutional, well then what do we do with that, right? So right. so what if uh, the executive branch was to say, you know what, um, I'm going to round up all the newspaper reporters who are critical of me in that wild hypothetical, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which unfortunately these days is uh, somewhat possible. Well, who would get to declare it unconstitutional? And if they didn't, does it stand? How would that get, if you will, adjudicated? George Mason wrote a long letter to Thomas Jefferson basically asking that same question after the Marbury decision. And um, and this had been a matter of discussion during the writing of the Constitution in, in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. And, and in all ratifying conventions, virtually every single one had some debate about the Supreme Court. And if you go back and read um, the Federalist, the three Federalist uh, paper, uh, what were newspaper articles at the beginning by by um, Hamilton and Madison. Oh, these are all by Hamilton, actually, about the court. You know, he said that the, the Supreme Court would be the least likely to offend. It has neither the power of the purse as the as the uh, Congress does, nor the power of the sword as the executive does. But uh, when George Mason asked Thomas Jefferson about that, Jefferson answered very simply. He said, the people themselves. In fact, the uh, dean of the Stanford Law School, whose name is escaping me right at the moment, um, but it'll probably come to me. Anyhow, he wrote a book called The People Themselves, arguing against judicial review. This is back 15, 20 years ago. And, and so Mason said, well, what the hell does that mean? And Jefferson said that, you know, we have to trust the people. We have to trust the mass of the people. Congress is elected every two years. Every single member of the House of Representatives is up for re-election. If a Congress was to go nuts, if an executive, the president was to go nuts, these are elected positions. And you have, if you have any faith at all in democracy, the core element of democracy in a republic is the ability to re-regulate, to stabilize, to upright the ship when it starts to list or tilt. And if you don't leave that power with the people, you have essentially converted your form of government from a republic to a monarchy. And the monarchs are now you know, a, a bunch of people sitting in Washington, D.C., wearing black robes, calling themselves Supreme Court justices. That's interesting. Look, um, <clears throat> it's a compelling, fascinating argument. Uh, on the other hand, if you uh, then, as president said, okay, uh, if there is no Supreme Court that could check whether I'm constitutional or not, why don't I just cancel elections? Right. Well, you would have you would have a revolt. I mean, again, <laughs> you think Shay's rebellion was a was a big deal? Wait until that happens. Um, yeah. Uh, although really with Democrats is, these is days, they would probably question. immediately surrender. Uh, but <laughs> anyway. I really don't, and I don't think Republicans would either. Yeah, um, you no, know, we, we have had, yeah, we've had presidents who've done some pretty outrageous stuff in history, and there's there has been pushback, but um, very little like what we're seeing now. And 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 you know, your questions, your 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 logical point here, 
in the era of Trump is probably something that Jefferson didn't envision because he was, uh, you know, the, the impeachment clause was clearly written and everybody understood at the time that the impeachment clause was not for crime crimes, high crimes. If you go back and read, you know, look at Black's Law Dictionary back in the, in the 1700s, high crimes were defined as the abuse of office. High crimes were when people were, were exploiting their office for their own uh, benefit, for power or more commonly for wealth. That was the definition of high crimes. So, I mean, the founders would have impeached this guy, Trump, within seconds um, or minutes or hours, you know, days. Um, the fact that it hasn't happened is a failure of our system. But here's where it gets even scarier, Chuck. What if Trump says, okay, I'm going to call off the elections? The, the you know, Congress tries to fight it. It goes to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, well, you know, we're in an emergency, and an emergency is envisioned by the Constitution. Um, and the president has legally declared a state of emergency. So, cool. We'll wait another four or five years for an election. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's as as conceivable as the idea that Trump would try to cancel the elections, which takes us back to, to Jefferson's point. I mean, that's not the essence of the whole book. And where it gets really interesting is I was, I was going through the papers of the Reagan administration, you know, during the 1980s, um, when there was this lawyer that Ronald Reagan had hired or had been hired, actually Ed Meese had hired him. He worked in the, in the Reagan administration and his job was to, uh, he had been given a very specific assignment the Republicans and Reagan wanted to roll back two Supreme Court decisions. They wanted to roll back the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, and they wanted to roll back the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision. Both were very unpopular with Republicans. They wanted to go back to a time of segregation, legal segregation, and they wanted to go back to a time when men controlled the reproductive uh, rights of women, period, full stop. So they hired this lawyer, a young up-and-coming conservative lawyer, and said, figure out how to do this. He spent a year and a half on this thing. He wrote a about a 45-page memo. I found a copy of it. I'm, I doubt most Americans even know this memo exists. And in it, he starts with the Constitutional Convention, works all the way up to 1984, 85, whatever year it was he was doing this, finds multiple examples where Congress has used its Article Three, Section 2 power in Article Three, Section 2 of the Constitution explicitly says Congress may, may, may uh, regulate, in fact, shall regulate the court and determine exceptions to what the court can rule on. And so his prescription was that Congress and the Republicans, you know, the Republicans could get enough of a majority that they should simply pass a law saying that 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 uh, Brown v. Board was no longer operational. We're going to go back to Plessy versus Ferguson. We're going to go back to separate but equal. And that uh, the 1973 decision in, in um, Roe v. Wade was no longer operational, and we were simply going to ban all ab- abortion nationwide. And, you know, if, if the Democrats don't like it, tough luck, because we're going to write into these two laws that Congress is using its Article Three, Section 2 powers specifically to stop the Supreme Court from using judicial review. That lawyer went on to have a storied career. His name is John Roberts, and he's now the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. So look, you make a really great point about what if the court said, yeah, you can cancel elections, that is constitutional. 
And then if there's nothing above them, well, then that's fascinating and troublesome. On the other hand, you mentioned Roe versus Wade there. Uh, but if it was true that there was- Well, no if I can, Cenk, if, if the court, if the Supreme Court said, okay, cool, no elections. Then it goes to the John Roberts solution. Congress convenes the House of Representatives and passes legislation that says, no, there will be an election. And the Supreme Court may not rule on it because in Article 3, Section 2, it says that we have the power to determine what the court can rule on and can't rule on. If that could get through the House and Senate, and if there was enough popular sentiment for it, the court doesn't have to respond to popular sentiment. They're in there for life. But the, but the, the elected branches, the House and Senate, have to. And if that got through and, uh, you know, and they could override a veto with a large enough proportion that they could override a veto, they could force the elections back. Mm. Pardon my interrupting. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, so, but you also mentioned Roe versus Wade there. Well, uh, if there was no uh, judicial review of what's constitutional, then you wouldn't have Roe v. Wade, right? Be that's, well, arguably. I mean, it, it would depend on how Roe v. Wade was determined. Um, the the case of Roe v. Wade was was based basically on a woman's right to privacy on the Fourth Amendment, on the Tenth Amendment, on the Fourteenth Amendment. So and, it strikes um, down uh, laws, state laws, and said they are unconstitutional uh, because right. they are violating these they rights. Gotten to that. There are other ways that they could have gotten to that. The big where Roe v. Wade is problematic, and liberals need to understand this and accept this, or even have a or at least have a conversation about it is that in Roe v. Wade and then subsequently in um, uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the Supreme Court basically wrote law. They created law out of whole cloth. They said there's three trimesters. Each trimester has a different set of rules about when you can and can't get an abortion. Um, I mean, almost of that was out of Casey, but Roe v. Wade set it up. And there's nowhere in the Constitution that the Supreme Court has given that authority. This was the objection that the Reagan folks and John Roberts had, not just to Roe v. Wade, but also to Brown v. Board. And you could make that same argument against Plessy versus Ferguson and against Dred Scott, and probably a half a dozen other major Supreme Court cases. And we have not ever, outside of conservative intellectual circuits, uh, circles, I mean, um, uh, oh, what's her name? Uh, the conservative woman who died just a few years ago. Um, Anyhow, she, she wrote an extraordinary book about this. It's called The Supremes, you know, about uh, the court writing legislation. Um, but, you know, liberals haven't engaged with this. And I, I raised that issue in here as well. In fact, there are a number of people I, I talked with, uh, I believe it was one of the top people in Planned Parenthood, but it might have been another one of the anti abortion groups, and said and pointed out that in 1973, this was 11 years, 12 years after the birth control pill was legalized. It was five years after the birth control had hit uh, you know, a major threshold. I think it was 45 or 50% of women in America were using it or planned to use it. Um, the women's liberation movement was really rolling along. Women were coming into the workplace. Um, individual states, at a time, were starting to visit their aunt. Probably within a decade, you would have had what you you know what you have right now, which is legal abortion nationwide. But you wouldn't have had a persistent, angry anti-abortion movement that felt like this didn't go through an appropriate legislative process. Yeah, look, I've said this a long time to some annoyance of our audience. 
I don't think Roe v. Wade was decided correctly. I think it was a wonderful law. I wish they'd passed it as a law. It's nearly perfect as a law. But where in the Constitution does it talk about trimesters? Right. Right. So definitely overreach. And so if you're saying, okay, well, what's the problem with that? Well, that's great when you win, not so good when you don't. So they then turn yeah. around and go, "Oh, by the way, I think corporations are human beings. Uh, they have the same constitutional rights as human beings, including freedom of speech and speech is money. I mean, we're writing a lot of laws now. Supreme Court is yeah. a lot of laws they just wrote there. And since speech is money and corporations are people, they have the right to spend unlimited money in politics. Well, all of a sudden we don't like it when they write laws, right? Yeah, exactly. And that was the Buckley decision in 76, which applied to billionaires owning politics, uh, politicians. And two years later, Lewis Powell authored the uh, uh, First National Bank versus Bilotti decision, saying well, this applies to corporations as well. And then, of course, Citizens United pulled all that together in a nice little package. Yeah, so let's talk about, I, look, I know you and I have talked about this in the past, but a lot of people don't know this part, and it is part of the hidden history of the Supreme Court. Uh, the corporations are people decision back in the 1800s. And, and what a sham that was. It's an amazing story. So if you could tell us real quick about that. Sure, yeah, I wrote an entire book about this. It's called uh, Unequal Protection is the title of the book. It was 1886, the case was the, uh, for, uh, Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad. The railroad argued that they shouldn't have to pay a higher tax rate in Santa Clara County than they did in Santa Ana County because the 14th Amendment offers equal protection to all persons and that as a corporation they were a person. The Supreme Court actually ruled against them and said, no, you've got to pay the tax. But John Chandler Bancroft Davis, who was the clerk of the court back at that time, whose father was the former governor of Massachusetts, he was a very wealthy, very powerful man, actually. The clerk at that time had more power than the individual justice. He wrote a head note, which is just a commentary to that case, in which he quoted Chief Justice Morrison Remick Waite as saying, we don't have any dispute about whether corporations are persons. That's not the issue before us. Now, what Waite was saying was, of course, corporations are persons. They're artificial persons. They can stand in court. They can be sued. They can pay taxes. The, and they can sign, you know, they can have contracts. These are corporate. This is artificial personhood. But the idea that corporations should have natural personhood, have the rights of humans, was considered absurd by Wade at the time, uh, the chief justice. And again, it's not what the court decided. But the Supreme Court has now cited that headnote 38 times. And you know, most recently in Citizens United. So, Tom, real quick on that. So that so you have a guy who's got a vested interest, sneaks out, somehow becomes clerk of the Supreme Court, and then writes the most, perhaps the most momentous part of any decision in American history because it's actually swamped our government. It's caused mm -hmm. corporate interests to take over our government completely, and and I would argue we've lost democracy because they. They simply have bought off all of our politicians. It destroyed the Constitution, uh, and it's in a goddamn headnote. It should have no uh, judicial weight at it all. No legal standing. Yeah, it had yeah, no legal standing at all. Uh, so, capture the Supreme Court led to the capture of the entire government. Is there any way to reverse that? It's been cited 38 times, so then they go, well, it's precedent because of the 38 other cases. But could uh, people make a case? Look, this was all decided wrong, and you all know it. It's it's clear as day. So no, corporations are not people. 
Right. I know you've been working on this for years, Cenk, and, and uh, you know, the, the move to amend.org people, uh, public citizen, there's a whole bunch of different groups working on uh, a constitutional amendment that will overturn this whole long series of bizarre Supreme Court decisions that would simply say corporations are not people, they're not entitled to rights under the, under the Bill of Rights, and money is not speech. It's not free speech. Corporations and rich people spending money in politics don't, are not exercising a First Amendment free speech right. That's the best way to do it. It's the most straightforward way to do it. But using John Roberts' logic, you could also do it legislatively. Congress could simply pass a law saying corporations are not people and money is not speech, and the Supreme Court may rule on this law. And mm. arguably that would stand. That's it would actually a constitutional crisis, but you know, I think well, it would be interesting if we had a progressive president say, "Hey, I'm using a constitutional valid provision here." Not only that, the chief justice is the guy who wrote this opinion, not as a judicial opinion, but as a legal opinion. You know, as you explained earlier, so you hard to argue. <laughs> so. Yeah. And then, sorry, you're you're not allowed to rule on money in politics, and uh, and we're done with it. Corporations aren't people, yeah. and they cannot give money to politicians. That would be fascinating. And there have been times when when Congress has passed laws that have court stripping. This is called court stripping or jurisdiction stripping in them. Um, it, it, Tom Tom Delay wrote a farm bill that had a court stripping provision. The Supreme Court couldn't rule on it. I think it was because of ethanol. I don't remember exactly why. It's in the book. All right, so we have a limited amount of time, but I, uh, is there any other things in the book about the Supreme Court and where it went awry that you really wanted to emphasize? I think those are the those are the main points. the The other big point is how the Supreme Court has been a on a, a jihad against or Jeremiah, I guess is the more appropriate word against labor, the rights of labor, and uh, the rights of working class people, uh, basically through most of its history, that the Supreme Court almost always rules on the side of power and money rather than on the, on the side of people. Because they're, of course, appointed by uh, politicians who get money from those corporations <laughs> because, of That's the, correct. because of the That's decision correct. that we cited. So yes, and in fact, they, um, you know, the two most recent Supreme Court justices got there because they were among uh, the very few, if not the only just judges in the whole country who said corporations are allowed to kill people and get away with it. So um, Gorsuch in the, in the uh, trucking case said, yeah, if a corporation tells you to freeze to death, you should freeze to death. And if you don't, you should be fired. Right. And, uh, and then Kavanaugh said, yeah, if a killer whale eats you, you have no rights. That's so, right, the Sea Wolf case. Yeah. yeah, so this is how the Supreme Court became the brutal executioner of the corporate world. Yep. And um, so, uh, Guys, you gotta check out the book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court by Tom Hartman. Tom, thank you so much for joining us, we really appreciate it. It's been an honor and pleasure, Chenka. It's always great talking with you. All right, good to talk to you, brother. Thank you. All right, guys, we've got a post game coming up. So Anna and I are going to do the members only section, tyt.com slash join to become a member and check that out. And that's the last half hour of the show. Uh, every day, so that's just for our members. Members make this show possible. Uh, it's just five bucks, price of a coffee basically. Uh, a month, you support progressive media, home of progressives, and you get all of our content. Uh, we'll see if we pick up the conversation from last night when 
me, Anna, and JR were talking about um, mental health and, and came to the conclusion that JR is actually in pretty good shape. It's me and Anna that have the problems. Uh, but I do have one last epiphany to talk about, so we'll pick it up over there uh, and we'll see you then.